Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 today on cornerstone connection with pastor gary hamrick real love is calling listen opens up your eyes mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise for good reason some of these things are a mystery to us but on a supernatural level, they are certainly understood and clear to God. But humanly speaking, we try to arrive at certain conclusions about all of this. That when I consider the sum total of Scripture in its totality, that I am personally convinced that it is intellectual dishonesty and biblically inconsistent for me to say that God discriminately chooses for some to be saved and, and some to be condemned. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ephesians. Scripture makes it clear that God wants all to come to repentance. It breaks his heart for any to perish. If that is his view of humanity, how is it possible that he sovereignly controls whether each individual human will choose repentance or not? That level of control basically would make us spiritual robots with no free will. It's a complex and confusing subject that you will never fully understand in this life. But as Pastor Gary continues our study of Ephesians in today's message, he will bring it under the illuminating light of the Word of God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The book of Ephesians is divided into really two sections pretty neatly. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about our position in Christ based on what God has done for us. And then the last half of the book, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, have to do with practice, what it is that we must do in in response to what God has first done uh, for us. And so, In chapter 1, Paul drives this home in the first section about our position in Christ based on what God has done for us. Because, again, if you'll just glance back at verse 3, this is where Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So again, he's emphasizing here's what here's what the Lord has done for you and me. Here's here's our position, here's how he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ and and so I just counted off seven as I looked at the following verses and so here's a few things that it tells us uh, in this first section what God has done for us in terms of 
all these spiritual blessings in Christ. It tells us in verse 4 that God chose us, uh, also that he loved us. In verse 5, that he predestined us, that he adopted us. In verse 7, that he redeemed us. And then in verse 13, that he saved us and he sealed us. The church really has no problems with five out of these seven terms. You know, it's, it's wonderful that, that God has loved us and he has adopted us. He has redeemed us, saved us, sealed us. But where, where the church historically has choked, you know, in relation to unity is in defining the words uh, that God chose us and predestined us. That becomes the big sticking point in the church for the last few centuries and sadly so even in some circles today. And so just to to basically remind us of of that so we can focus on where we're going, you know, the, the big debate is did God choose us and predestine us relative to our salvation uh, according to his sovereign will, meaning, meaning that he chose us and predestined us for salvation uh, because he chose some to be saved and he chose some to be condemned. Uh, and Romans 9.18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Uh, Jesus even said in John 15.16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So there's that angle. Did, did, did God choose us and predestine us according to his sovereign predetermination of who should be saved and who should not? Or, or did God choose us and predestine us relative to our salvation according to his foreknowledge? And there are verses in the Bible also that speak very specifically about his foreknowledge. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 2, it says, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Romans eight twenty nine, Paul says something similar to what Peter just said when he writes, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So in other words, is the argument that God chose us and predestined us according to a sovereign choice that he predetermined some to be saved and some to be condemned? Or did he choose us and predestine us according to his foreknowledge, knowing all things that he knows in advance who will choose him, who will reject him? And so in that sense, we are chosen and predestined. And again, it all depends on from what angle you interpret these things. We talked about how do you view God's sovereignty? The argument is that you will either view him predominantly as a ruling monarch, that is, one who exercises his divine will, or as a loving parent, one who exercises divine love. And as I mentioned last week, everybody has their own particular slant, their own particular angle from which they interpret Scripture. And for me, I tend to see, though he is is sovereign, so in that sense, he exercises his divine will clearly in the Bible that the predominant view that I personally approach Scripture from is the lens of a loving parent, and thus he expresses his divine will, and thus he, he makes room for the free moral agency of man with which he created us. So it, it does depend what angle you're approaching some of these verses from. That's the lens through which you're going to interpret it. We also need to understand that, that there's the angle of uh, uh, what view do you have in terms of God's choosing of us? Uh, do, you, do you see the whole uh, chosen and election and 
and predestination individually or corporately. And I made the argument last week that it's pretty clear in the Old Testament that it is corporate. God says over and over again that he has chosen Israel as his people through whom the redemptive plan will come to all nations. Deuteronomy 7, 6, just one among many verses where God says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Yes or no, Israel is God's sovereign choice. Yes. Now, it doesn't mean that other nations are not as loved, but what it means is God sovereignly chose a particular nation, birthed a people out of nothing. Abraham was a Gentile who was a worshiper of the moon god, And Abraham was plucked from among all the Gentiles of the day through his seed to give birth to a race of people that up to that point did not even exist. And God's purpose in election, if you will, his purpose corporately for choosing Israel was to reveal a redemptive plan for the sake of the whole world. So why is it then, as I mentioned last week, do we get to the New Testament and suddenly election and chosen and predestination is seen very narrowly in an individualistic way? It leaves people with a lot of fear, quite frankly, as to whether or not I am particularly chosen by God or not. But it, it, it kind of goes a long way to helping relieve the fear if we see his choosing work and predestination in terms of a corporate sense that just as he chose Israel in the Old Testament, he has chosen the church in the New Testament as a corporate body through whom, through us, that redemptive plan of the message of the gospel is shared. That's a very similar thing. The church hasn't replaced Israel, but the church is a parallel in that sense and that God has corporately chosen the church. So in that sense, we are the chosen. We are the predestined. We are those that God has corporately selected through whom the redemptive plan should be announced, should be declared. That's what the gospel means, euangelion, the good news, that we should declare it. And so his express purposes are revealed in the election of the church, more corporately than perhaps even individualistically. And the companion verse for that argument is 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. That just as Israel was chosen corporately for God's redemptive purposes, Old Testament, the church is the fulfillment of that redemptive plan in a corporate sense in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking about the church, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when I take the totality of scripture, this is me personally speaking, which has to do with our general slant here at Cornerstone on this map. When I take the totality of scripture relative to the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and recognizing that the Bible speaks of both and that the tension is kept intact and that for good reason, some of these things are a mystery to us. But on a supernatural level, they are certainly understood and clear to God. But humanly speaking, we try to arrive at certain conclusions about all of this. That when I consider the sum total of Scripture in its totality, that I am personally convinced that it is intellectual dishonesty and biblically inconsistent for me to say that God discriminately chooses for some to be saved and and some to be condemned. You know... John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 1 John 2.2, 2, 
Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness, but he is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Revelation twenty two seventeen, the very last promise in all of the Bible, let the spirit and the bride say, come, and let all who hear say, come, and let those who are thirsty, come, and let them drink freely, whosoever will, from the water of life. Okay, so when when I personally consider the sum total of Scripture, I, I believe in this tension, purposely kept intact. But I also see it through the lens of a loving, paternal father who wants none to perish but all to come to repentance. And the exercise of man's responsibility in conjunction with God initiating his plan of salvation in his sovereignty comes to a climax in the heart of every individual as to whether or not you will receive or whether or not you will reject. God wants none to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. His heart is for the world. And so so Paul writes here about chosen and predestined, but we come now here to this section starting at verse 15. If you'll look there in your Bibles now, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. If if, if you'll notice now again, I want you to, to write in the margin of your Bible that this also, from verses 15 to 23, all those verses are one sentence in the original Greek language. Okay, So just as last week we said that verses 3 through 14 is one sentence in the Greek language, verses 15 through 23, through the end of the chapter, is also one sentence in the original Greek language, meaning that the entire first chapter of Ephesians in the original Greek language was three sentences. That's it. Now, one of the reasons why it's important to point that out is because the continuity of thought. You know, as as Paul is writing here, verses 3 through 14, there's a continuity of thought. Now, in English, so that it's not a long run-on sentence and so that every grammar teacher would be bothered by what, what Paul wrote here, it's divided into multiple sentences so that it's not... Run-on sentences, right? And, and yet, we need to make sure we preserve that there's an intent behind the thought and the meaning, that there's a, there's a consistency here. And so you're going to notice from verses 15 to 23 that there's a consistent thought here. That's why it's one sentence. And it actually is the beginning of one of two prayers uh, in, in the book of Ephesians. There are, there are two prayers... Uh, in the book of Ephesians, this is one of them, and there's another prayer in chapter 3, which, which we will see when we get there, uh, but this is the first of two prayers from verses 15 to 23, so what I like to do is just, I want to read it, and then we'll come back and we'll kind of uh, summarize it. So, so here we go, verse 15, Paul writes, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, that is, under Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So here we have, again, one of two prayers, and he's going to basically pray for two particular things in this prayer, and then he kind of, he, he, he writes some supporting things around, around at least the second one. The, the first thing that he just says very clearly is, I, I want you to know Jesus better. He says, I want you to know Jesus better. He, he, he says, I, I pray that you would have wisdom. Go back to verse 17. He says, I pray that you would have wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So, so that is his desire for us, that we would have wisdom from above and revelation from God so that we would know Jesus in a very personal way. Listen, how many of you understand there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus? Okay. A lot of people in our world know about Jesus, and sadly, sadly, a lot of people know erroneous things about Jesus, and so they go around talking as if they really know him, but, but it's in conflict sometimes with what Scripture says, so then you realize you don't even, even know about him. And, and there's a lot of stuff out there. You know, this, is, this is why Jesus in Matthew 16 took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, which is the, the northernmost part of Israel. And on our trip to Israel, this is one of the places that we go. And you have to pass through the Golan Heights, and you get all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. It was, the, it was the furthest away place that Jesus took his disciples. And it's in that conversation with them in Matthew 16 that he says, who do men say that I am? You know, there, there's a lot of people who think a lot of things about Jesus, and Jesus is like, you know, what, what are people tweeting about me? That's what he's he basically saying. And, and so they say, well, some say that you're Elijah, some say that you're Jeremiah, some say that you're a prophet of old, some say you're John the Baptist. And, and, and so... They had all these different views of who Jesus is. Well, Jesus is Jeremiah. He's, he's the weeping prophet. He's, he's Elijah. He's, he's the prophet of power. He's a prophet of old. You know, he's, he's John the Baptist. He's the hard-hitting, you know, the fundamental Jesus. You know, and, 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 and so Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And this is when Peter speaks up and he says, well, you were the Christ. You were the Messiah, Mashiach. You were the son of the living God. And, and it's a wonderful, and, and that, by the way, is an example of when Paul says here, I pray that you'll have wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better, because it was wisdom and revelation that gave that answer to Peter. Because Jesus even says, well done, Simon, son of Jonah. I tell you, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. In other words, you're not bright enough to get that on your own, are you? <laughs> that came from God above. And Peter makes his profession of faith. And by the way, when Jesus turns and says, upon this rock, I shall build my church, he didn't mean Peter as the foundation of the church. It's two different words in the Greek that are used there, Petra and Petros. He distinguishes between a regular pebble and a boulder. What he's saying is your confession is right and true. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ, is the Lord, is the Son of God who came to save the sins of the world. You too can be included in, in the church, and so it's upon this foundation of the confession of faith that the church is built, not upon a man. If the church is built upon Peter, we're doomed, okay? If it's built on any person, we're in trouble, but it's built on the rock, meaning the profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But in other words, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven, he had, he had the right understanding, but it was given to him by revelation, And even in today's terms, 
There are a lot of people who would say a lot of things about who Jesus is. And in Matthew 16, it's maybe he's Jeremiah, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's John the Baptist or some prophet of old. Today, Mormons have a different explanation of who Jesus is. Muslims have a different explanation of who Jesus is. Jehovah's Witnesses have a different explanation of who Jesus is. And I can tell you that all three of those, by example, are in conflict with what Jesus says about himself in the Bible. So now you have to believe what is the highest source of authority. So if you believe, as I do, that the Bible is the highest source of authority, then we get to know Jesus by reading his word, by reading the Bible and understanding who he is. If you're new to the faith, or if you're not even a believer, start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. A lot of people encourage folks to start reading the Gospel of John, but you know, it's all good. So if you like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, any of those four Gospels will help you to understand who Jesus is, who he said he is, what his mission and ministry was all about. So we have to know him, not just know about him. We have to know him. And the only way you know him is to spend time with him. How do you know people that you love and are friends with? You know them because you spend time with them. You can't know them from a distance. Somebody can't tell you about someone. You have to personally know them. So get to know your Lord and spend time with him. Sit at his feet and open up the scriptures and just read in the word who he is and what he said and understand him. Paul says, I pray that you would know him better. This is why Paul would say in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, I want to know Christ. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death and somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead myself. He said, I want to know about Jesus. He said, I want to know Christ. I even want to know his sufferings. I want to know the depths of his joys and his agonies, that I would know him better. Well, the second thing that Paul also says here is, I pray that you would know the benefits of knowing Jesus. And he, and he says there, in, in the rest of this passage here, he says, I, I pray in verse 18 that the eyes of your heart, okay, that's a, that's a metaphorical terms, just meaning the, the core of your spirit, the, the core of your being, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. And so here, here are three things underneath knowing the benefits of knowing Jesus, some subpoints that he basically says here in the rest of this passage. I want you to know the hope of his calling the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and the greatness of his power. The hope of his calling. He says, the hope to which he has called you. It it is his calling, and he wants us to know that hope. His calling is his perspective on the future. The believer has a glorious future in terms of resurrected life, the eternal life, freedom from sin. I I mean, pure and ultimate freedom from sin, Uh, to know perfected justification, to know glorious elevation above the angels themselves, because the word even tells us that, that we shall even judge angels, meaning the fallen angels. So these are all our future hope. This is all, you know, reminding us of what the hope is that we have in him relative to his calling in our lives. And then the riches of his inheritance in the saints, that's the other part, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Notice, this is the riches of his glorious inheritance inheritance. It's not your inheritance. Oftentimes we gravitate towards, you know, what is my inheritance in this deal? 
What am I going to get out of this deal? No, notice, notice the language intentionally here. He says that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, Paul wanted the Ephesians, and likewise, the Holy Spirit will want us to know that they and we are so precious to God that he considers us and them his own inheritance. That's how precious we are to him. That's all we have time for today on Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary will have more to share from Ephesians next time. But right now, we'd like to tell you how you can continue studying God's Word on your own. Did you know that you can learn from the Bible? You don't need a degree or years of study to understand what God has to say. Just open up the Scripture and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and heart to the message printed there. If you'd like some additional resources to help with your personal time studying the Bible, we've compiled a list for you on our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Just search under the Teachings tab. While you're there, feel free to listen to more of Pastor Gary's messages in Ephesians or in the other books of the Bible he's explored. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take Cornerstone Connection anywhere with the mobile app to listen to commentary on the Word. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to meet you. Come join us at Cornerstone Chapel to spend time in fellowship, worship, and studying Scripture together. Your presence is most welcome. Find out more at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you'll tune in again for our next edition of Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know